So if you'd like to turn with me to Acts chapter 1, and you'll find it on page 1092 of the Pew Bibles, which are in front of you in the pews. So page 1092, we're going to read Acts chapter 1 and the first 11 verses. Here is the word of God. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift of my father has promised, which you've heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when they met together, they asked Jesus, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the father has set by his own authority but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside him. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into the heavens. And may the Lord bless his word to us this morning. And let us pray. In everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Lord, we have much to thank you for. Too much for any short prayer in church. But we thank you for the greatest gift of all, the gift of yourself in the Lord Jesus. We thank you for the privilege of sharing you with others. And we pray for those who have gone this week to other countries to show Jesus there. For Kenzie in Canada, for the team in Moldova, Andrea and Philip and Heather and James, and Olivia, and Anna, and Rachel. Give them, and all who travel to distant camps, safety, a oneness within the team members and with those with whom they're working, and the joy of seeing others coming to know our Lord and Savior. We thank you for those whose calling is to serve in public life, 
for councillors and MLAs and MPs, and for those who assist them in their work. Lord, we pray for those who's, who are locked in the present political impasse. While they talk and talk, some vulnerable people are beginning to suffer. So, Lord, help them and help indeed all in our community to seek the greater good and lead our political representatives to find an acceptable agreement. As we draw near the 12th, we pray for those involved in the celebrations and for those who are right to disrupt them. For the young hotheads on both sides and for those shadowy figures who are manipulating in the background. Restrain evil, Lord, and further good. Protect those who are at risk from large bonfires or civil unrest. Protect those in the security forces and the fire and ambulance services, and may their intervention not be required. And let us all have a quiet marching season. We pray for those who have heard the call for service overseas. We mention Helen, Simone, James and Heather. For those at home, for Russell and Bran and Eddie. For Frank and Claire as they try to get back to normal ministry. We pray for those who have heard the call to follow Jesus and serve you in so many different ways here in Bloomfield and in other churches. For those at Walkway, for our young people under Reuben's leadership at present at Summer Madness. And finally, we pray in silence for those in special need. In everything by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God and the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen. To Acts chapter 1. Uh, you'll find it on page 1092 of the Pew Bible. So please have Acts chapter 1 open in front of you. And as you're doing that, let me just pray for us. Father, we've been singing, Let the presence of the risen Lord come renew my heart and make me whole. Cause your word to come alive in me. Cause your church to hunger for your ways. Father, as we look at this exciting passage of Acts chapter 1 this morning, may it shape and mold us. May it cause us to hunger for your ways in our own lives, in the lives of those around us and in this world, so that your kingdom may be evident for all to see. 
Lord, we ask you to bless us and to be with us and to give us your Holy Spirit so that we may understand this and be blessed by it. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. It's that time of year when there will be hundreds of them to choose from. Some are free to download. Others you'll have to purchase in order to get it on your item or Kindle. What am I talking about? I'm talking about books to read for the summer. And at some point over this summer months, you'll have hopefully a bit of a break, whether it's in the evenings or on a holiday. And perhaps you'll pick some crime novel or a bit of a fiction or a straight autobiography or biography. You might go to the Costa Book Awards and think, I wonder what was good this year. Or you might look, you might be brave and go to the Man Booker Prize and pick something very left field to decide on. You might read the back of it. Or you might read the front page and understand, what am I looking at here? What, what will whet my appetite for this summer reading book? And today at Bloomfield, we begin another book, the book which is a real-life story of the book of Acts, chapter 1. And it'll take us through July and August as we look through chapters 1 to 4. And Luke, as it were, in the opening of the book, the front page gives us a taste of this book. Do you see it in verses 1 and 2? He says, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. His former book. We've just jumped into volume two of Luke's writings. His former book is what? It is Luke's gospel, isn't it? And what he is writing to is this young convert called Theophilus. And Luke tells us why he wrote the gospel. He says this, it's coming up on the screen. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled amongst us, just as they were handed down to us by those from the first high witnesses and servants of the word. Then Dr. Luke says this, Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Why? so that you may be certain of the things you were taught. Luke put his gospel together to encourage this young convert in what he was taught and knew from the gospel. And then today we come into volume two of Luke's writings in the book of Acts, and he continues the ministry of Jesus that he began. And so Luke wrote an orderly account, but here in book two, we are in the book of Acts. And it is an account of all that Jesus continued to do through the Holy Spirit and in the work of the apostles. So please just take this note. The book of Acts is a continuation of Jesus' ministry. It is not Jesus shelved in heaven where he sat down and he's doing nothing now. And now the, the apostles and the church are continuing. No, no. The book of Acts is a continuation of all that Jesus continued to do through the Holy Spirit and through the apostles, and then later through the post-apostolic church. But the question you have is this, isn't it? What's an apostle? What is an apostle? Because it's mentioned here in verses 1 to 5, and simply an apostle is this, it is a sent one. Here's how one commentator puts it. He says, an envoy, a delegate, an ambassador, sent with a message and with the carrying the authority of the, of the sender. We have plenty of ambassadors today. Beckham's an ambassador for someone, isn't he? UNICEF. He goes as their authority figure. Here, the apostles, these men who we read about in the Gospels, are now sent by God as his apostles. They have his authority. That's what makes an apostle. But there are a couple of things that make 
an apostle also in these verses. And there are four things that I want to highlight. The second is this, they are chosen by Jesus. You see that in verse 2 of this chapter. The apostles were personally chosen by Jesus. If you go back into Luke 6, verse 13, it says this, when morning came, Jesus called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also designated apostles. The apostles were called and chosen by Jesus himself. They were not self-selected. They were, did not enter an X-factor competition and were picked out because they had the best looks or the best singers in the place. No, no. A committee wasn't formed to bring this a group of apostles together, nor were they self-appointment. There are no Joses. I'm the chosen one. No, in fact, Jesus chose them personally. The disciples, we will see next week, when they replace one of the apostles, they pray this, Lord, show us which of these two you have chosen. Paul, when he is chosen as an apostle, it says this about him, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and into their kings. The apostles were sent ones, but they were also chosen ones by Jesus. Secondly, we see in verse 3 that Jesus revealed himself to them. These disciples had, been, had seen and met with Jesus after his resurrection. They'd been eyewitnesses to the person of the risen Lord Jesus, and that gave them a uniqueness as apostles, doesn't it? So if they have seen Jesus, if they've heard him, doesn't that add weight then to their letters, to the writings of the apostles? Because for 40 days, Jesus went in and out amongst these apostles, teaching them about the kingdom of God. This tells you something about these apostles. It adds huge amount of weight to their writings, to their accounts of what Jesus did and thought. So Jesus chooses them. Jesus reveals himself to them. But Jesus also commands and commissions them. Do you see it in verses 6 and 8? And we'll come back to this in more detail. He told them not to leave Jerusalem because they were going to receive the Holy Spirit. Commanded them, don't. But then he commissioned them and he said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and all Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Apostles were commanded and commissioned by Jesus. And then fourthly, Jesus promised them the Holy Spirit, verse 5. The apostles were to wait for the gift of God the Holy Spirit. And in a few days, Jesus promised them that they would be baptized with the Holy Spirit. These apostles were going to be empowered by the Holy Spirit to carry on the ministry of Jesus to the ends of the earth. They needed to be, didn't they? If you have read any of the gospel accounts, you'll find this, this group of men, they were weak individuals at times, strugglers. They weren't, they weren't what you would give a mission to, really. And yet Jesus comes and he said, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit, my spirit, in order for them to be the Lord's witness. They needed the spirit to lead them, to teach them, and empower them to continue the ministry of Jesus throughout these things. These four things that we outline, these apostles were sent by Jesus. They were chosen by him, revealed he did to them. He promised them the Holy Spirit. Make this group of men distinctively apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is a growing trend within the church to think that we have apostles today. We do not have apostles today. There are no longer apostles like this. This was a unique group of men for Jesus's mission to go into all the world to be his witnesses. What Jesus began to continue, he did it through the apostles by the help of the Holy Spirit. 
And this takes us to verses 6 to 8, where Jesus says to them, my witnesses, all right, that they were going to be my witnesses. Imagine for a moment, I'm a newcomer to, to Northern Ireland, and I've been hearing a certain phrase that I need you to explain to me, all right? And the phrase is this, where is God's country? Have a think about that for a minute. Where is God's country? The sign says we're entering it. Some of you might say Balamina, I'm sure. I've heard that, all right? Jeffrey up here might say Kilkeel, or now that he's in Risharkin, he might say Risharkin's God's country. But what's the idea behind this when we say God's country? That God owns a place? That a beautiful place, we might say, oh, this is really God's country, which could be North Coast or the Glens, or even some place in Africa if from there. And the disciples here in verse 6, if you look at it carefully, have their God country moment. And it's understandable, isn't it? Because there's something brewing here among the disciples. They have the resurrected Jesus amongst them. They've been instructed by him. They've been promised the Holy Spirit in a couple of days. And they connect the kingdom of God and the spirit of God with God's own country, namely Israel, in their own thinking. And look at the question that they asked Jesus in verse 6. They said, Lord, are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel? The disciples link all that is happening with the restoration of the kingdom of Israel. The kingdom of Israel had been broken up many years, centuries before this, when Judah and Israel split. Israel currently is occupied by the Roman authorities. And there was among the Jews of Jesus' day a belief that the Messiah, when he would come, would bring the kingdom of God, and it would mean a restoration of Israel to its former days. And this is the thinking that these disciples have. But they have three misunderstandings regarding the kingdom of God. And the first one is this, in verse 6, are you going to restore? They were thinking that Jesus was going to restore a political Israel again. They would go back to the way it was, the glory days of having a political identity among the nations. Do you see the second misunderstanding? At this time, they believed the restoration was now imminent, going to happen. Are you going to do it now? Is it this moment? Thirdly, their kingdom understanding was so narrowed down to the nation of Israel. At this time, are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel? narrowed down, a national kingdom. If they had banners or flags, it would probably have said this, for God and for Israel. That's what it would have had on it. This was the disciples' understanding of what the Messiah had come to do, that they were not alone in this. If you look at the two lads on the road to Emmaus after Jesus died, they're filled with a slight regret, and they say this, but we had hoped that this Jesus was the one who came to redeem Israel. The people and the disciples thought the Messiah had come to restore a kingdom which was political, going to happen straight away, and it was going to be national in nature and way. Today, there are still some who link the kingdom of God with a particular politics persuasion with specific nations. But look what Jesus does in verses 7 and 8 in reply to these brothers. He says to them, no, no, no. It's not for you to know the times and dates set by my authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jesus says to him, it's not your business 
to know the times and dates set by my father. Let God look after Israel. But your business when you receive the Holy Spirit is to go into Jerusalem, to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That's your business. And what Jesus does here is move their very narrowed understanding of the kingdom of God onto a bigger stage. Let me ask you this. If the Holy Spirit hadn't come upon these apostles, what would they have done? If he hadn't commanded them, where would they have stayed? They would have stayed in Israel, waiting for the restoration of a political, national kingdom. They would have stayed there. They would not have gone out. And for a few moments this morning, I want to take some time with you to reflect on what Jesus is saying about these witnesses going into these places, these three locations. There are three geographical areas, Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. For many of us, when you hear about this passage, or have studied it, or sat under a previous sermon on these, you will understand rightly that these are three locations where the gospel in God's purposes and plans radiate out. The first you'll see if you read the entirety of Acts, you'll see from chapter 1 to verse chapter 7, it's in the city of Jerusalem. Why do they leave Jerusalem in chapter 7? Because Stephen is stoned and persecution drives them out of Jerusalem and they go to Judea and Samaria. After that, the latter part of the book of Acts, where are you? You're in the ends of the earth, as it were, for their day in Rome or possibly Spain. And this is what happens here. But have these here, have these phrases, Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and the ends of the earth carry more than a geographical position? Because you've probably heard, haven't you, that we need to be witnesses here in Jerusalem, in our locality, in our country, and across the world. And that's right. But surely they carry more significance than that. Let me explain it this way. Jerusalem in the Old Testament was what? Referred to as Zion, wasn't it? And the prophets Isaiah and Micah, and you can look them up, spoke about a time when the law of the Lord would go out from Zion, when it would leave Jerusalem. What's happening here in Acts? The word is going out from Jerusalem. Jerusalem also was known for the kings and the residence of the kings. And what do we find here? We find King Jesus sending out his witnesses into all the world, taking the gospel out. What about Judea and Samaria? They were historically the divided kingdoms. And what is happening? So divided that they often went around Samaria if they were traveling through it rather than go through it because of cultural and religious differences. And what do we find here in Judea and Samaria? We find the gospel leaving Jerusalem going into Judea and Samaria, and people being united together in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Samaritan, or the woman at the well, you'll not worship on this mountain, Jesus said. A time is coming when you will worship me in spirit and truth. Bringing people from different religious and cultural backgrounds together, the gospel does that. And lastly, the gospel goes to the ends of the earth. It was always God's purpose and plan, God's mission as it were, to always go further out than Israel. It wasn't just for Israel to enjoy God and his covenant. He called Israel to himself so that they might be the light to the nations around them, making Yahweh known. That's why Isaiah said these words, I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. So here we have in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, 
the risen Lord Jesus commissioning his apostles to go to the ends of the earth with the good news of salvation for all. Verse 8 is an amazing verse because what it tells us is three things about the kingdom of God. It tells us this, that the kingdom of God is spiritual. The kingdom is about winning over the hearts and lives of people, not by force or political persuasion or by armies or arm, but people like you and I being encountered the love and authority and lordship of Jesus in our life. The kingdom of God is spiritual. Please don't forget that. Please be encouraged by that. It is not political. It is not done by forcing people's arms to turn to Christianity. It is by encountering Jesus. The second thing about the kingdom of God is that it is international. God's kingdom for all is for all tribes and nations and people. There is no for God and for anywhere else. With God's kingdom, but rather it is this. It is for every person, nationality, people, and nations. Isn't that the implication of it? That as we go from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, it is for all people. And that's why we can't take a political or cultural allegiance that is higher to us than the sake of the gospel. There can't be a cultural or political loyalty that we hold that we cannot give up for the sake of the gospel or the expansion of God's kingdom. And that makes me think of all certain implications. I cannot hold on to my cultural background with greater allegiance than the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ if I want to see the kingdom of God international. Isn't that wonderful to think? It transcends culture, politics, people. It begs the question, doesn't it? If the God's kingdom is international, how can any flag or color, emblem or anthem have any part within the kingdom of God? That's the implication of it. When the gospel and the church are reaching out internationally, how does it impact on the way that we do that? God's kingdom is international. And when it is brought together, it will be like this. John saw a huge multitude that no one could count from every nation and tribe and language standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Wonderful. God's kingdom is spiritual. God's kingdom is international. And then the kingdom of God is gradual. The gospel doesn't just go from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth in the blink of an eye or a flick of the fingers. It transforms lives and people, but it was gradual. In Luke's gospel, you have the lovely story, don't you, of the mustard seed. The smallest seed, it is planted, and over time it grows. Until what? You see the branches branching out. You see it grow quietly. I'm sure at times when we think about the kingdom of God, the rule of Jesus in our lives and in our society and in our world, you're often wondering, aren't you? It's not very impressive. Is it grown? Is it relevant still? Does it have any impact? But the parable of the mustard seed tells us quietly it grows and grows till it branches out and gives shelter. The wonderful thing about verse 8 is that the apostles are being equipped for this task by the Holy Spirit 
and they will take the gospel out. But what about today? You see, this commission to continue Jesus' work is still happening today within the church and his people. That is why John Stott says the following. He says the whole interim period between Pentecost and the parousia is to be filled with the worldwide mission of the church in the power of the Spirit. We're part of that here at Bloomfield. You and your workplace are part of this worldwide mission. On our holidays, you're part of this worldwide mission. In your families, amongst your friends, in this locality, we are part of the worldwide mission of God. In this country, worldwide, God's mission. Today, we have sent folk to Canada, to Moldova, to Japan, to Nepal, in God's worldwide mission, because the kingdom of God is spiritual. It is international and gradual. And how exciting that is that God brings us to be part of that kingdom, how countercultural it is, how life transforming. Unseen growth, but one day it'll be unmissable. And this takes us to our final verses today, verses 9 to 11. Keep following with me, which is the resurrection or the ascension and return of Jesus Christ. After Jesus commissions his disciples to be his witnesses, the time comes for Jesus to return to his Father in heaven, where he will continue the work he had begun. Jesus' ascension, do you see it in the verses? Four times it mentions sky and heaven. They're the same word in the Greek, into the sky, into heaven. Jesus is taken up by a cloud. And the Christian creeds kind of confirm the ascension of Jesus. Do you remember this phrase? He suffered and was buried, and the third day he rose again, according to the scriptures, and ascended into heaven and sits on the right hand of God the Father. The resurrection and ascension of Jesus are not normal circumstances. They are supernatural, because we're dealing here with the Son of God. And accompanying these events, do you see it in verse 10, are two men, probably angels. Angels always seem to appear, don't they, at major moments in history and time concerning Jesus. His birth, angels were there. When he faced a temptation, having done what Adam couldn't do in obedience, angels attended him. At the tomb, the empty tomb, angels were there. And here in verse 11, two men dressed in white stood before the disciples and noticed their question to the disciples in verse 11. Why do you stand here looking into the sky? What a strange question. It's a great question for them, isn't it? They've just been told that Jesus to wait in Jerusalem for the Holy Spirit. You'll be my witnesses. And the angel said, why, why are you standing here? Because the reality is they could have stayed there, couldn't they? Gazing up to heaven, wondering, is he coming back? Is he not? Instead, the angel said, why do you stand here? You're his witnesses. Verse 11 is a great reminder, isn't it, for these disciples and ourselves today, because they say to him, to the apostles, this same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. What a lovely verse, verse 11. Three quick things to finish. It says, he will come back. He will come back. Why is that important? Because the mission of the church is to proclaim and make Jesus known until he returns. The kingdom needs to be completed. The rule and reign of Jesus needs to be extended and proclaimed and made known so that one day the glory of God will fill this earth. The Nicene Creed tells us he will come back and he shall come again 
with glory to judge the quick and the dead whose kingdom shall have no end. Jesus is coming back. This same Jesus is coming back. That's the second thing. What does that mean? It's not going to be a spiritual Jesus. It's going to be a physical Jesus. The one who left was physical, glorified body. He will return a physical Jesus. And then it says, in the same way he will return. It will be the same way he returns. What's that mean? It'll be visible. You'll see it. But it won't be exactly the same. Jesus' ascension into heaven here in Acts was only witnessed by a few faithful people seeing him go. But his return will not be a private affair, but a public spectacle. Let me read Revelation. Look, he's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. Mark says this, and you will see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus is coming back. This morning we see that the apostles continue the ministry of Jesus with the enabling of the Holy Spirit to make him known to the ends of the earth. Today, we are part of God's church to continue to make him known here, outside this walls, in this city, in this country, across to the ends of the earth. We do not know how long a time there is before King Jesus returns. But what we do know in the meantime is that this kingdom is spiritual. It is international and it is gradual and God says to us, I'm coming, he's coming back, and he will bring his people to be with himself forever. Folks, this is the work that God has called us to be involved in, by enabling us with the gift of the Spirit of God, and the task is to go and make him known. I've been enjoying the OMF song uh, that was written, particularly for the cause of the gospel, and it says this, that we bear the torch that flaming from the hands of those who gave their lives proclaiming that Jesus died and rose. Ours is the same commission, the same glad message ours, fired by the same ambition. To thee we yield our powers. O Father who sustained them, O Spirit who inspired, Spirit whose love constrained them to toil with zeal untired. From cowardice defend us, from lethargy awake, Forth on thy errand send us to labor for thy sake. We go to all the world with kingdom hope unfurled. No other name has power to save but Jesus Christ the Lord. Let me pray for us. Father, we confess this morning that we have a narrow view of your kingdom, of your rule. And Father, we pray that you'll forgive us for that. Father, we ask that you would indeed forgive us for having higher allegiances, loyalties to other things rather than the gospel and the kingdom of God. And Father, thank you for so reminding us this morning that your kingdom is spiritual that it is confronting lives of men and women like ourselves with the claim that Jesus is Lord. Thank you, Lord, that the kingdom is international. It is not for us alone. It is for all peoples from every nation and tribe and people and language, so that on that day they will stand before you and declare your praises. 
Thank you that your kingdom is gradual. Help us in patience, Lord, to believe that this gospel message is powerful for us and for all this world. And Lord, we pray and thank you for the reminder that you're coming back, that you will take your people to be with yourself. And Lord, until that day, help us to be your witnesses. Help us to keep in step with your spirit and to move and delight and to enjoy the gospel as we make Jesus known amongst ourselves in this community and across the world. Lord, help us, we pray, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.